This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Resolution Foundation. My name's Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Um, uh, we're an organisation that focuses on living standards, so we're going to talk about it uh, today, not least because this is a country going through a cost of living crisis. And one of the things that happens in politics and in policy-making circles is that debates come and go. Like when they're being focused on, they can get a lot of attention. Um, people are talking about them not just in the pub, but in policy-making circles, uh, in economics articles, and all the rest. And then they can come and that generally is driven by underlying things that are actually going on. So like last summer, really high energy bills, right? Obviously is why people started talking about the cost of living crisis. But one of the slightly odd things that's happening right now is because some of the things that people like us and uh, others look at, such as wholesale energy prices are coming down, people keep hoping that at some point the ONS, I'll come on to it in a second, are going to tell us that inflation itself is coming down. Um, the debate's gone quite quiet. The cost of living debate actually slightly has like receded. There's not, there's no policy. It's a question of policymakers doing anything, particularly about the cost of living crisis. Now they're kind of done on the policy making side. The only problem with that is for people, uh, it hasn't gone away at all. Like we're smack in the middle of it. Even if inflation comes down, prices themselves certainly aren't coming down. We won't start to see energy prices starting to fall until July. Fingers crossed that should be um, happening. We will get inflation down almost certainly. Um, next month just arithmetically but it doesn't mean things are getting cheaper for people so i think it's really important that we stay focused on uh analyzing what is actually happening to people and lots of the data sets we rely on won't tell us that formally for years so what we want to do today with a report out uh with the support of the health foundation for whom i should express a lot of thanks um is to dig into what are people actually doing as they're living through that crisis how are they coping and in particular how are different groups coping so that is the plan today that as i say there's a report on the website with a big survey so have a look at that for loads of detail but we're going to be digging through that with you um today so first of all you're going to hear from molly broom who's an economist at the foundation and the author of one one of the authors of today's report she's going to give you a snapshot of what can we see british households doing as they face the highest inflation for 40 years particularly over the winter which remember because energy consumption is so uneven across the year is the peak of lots of the difficulties people have faced. And then what does that tell us about how this crisis is playing out? And then you're going to hear from uh, Grant Stitzner, who's the chief economist um, at the Office for National Statistics, who themselves are doing a great job of staying on top of what people say and businesses actually say they're doing during this difficult economic time rather than waiting for the big surveys that we all rely on for our detailed work in a few years time so they're doing great work and we're going to hear a bit about uh, that and then you're going to hear from Vicky Spratt who's an author and housing correspondent at the I papers also written extensively about how the housing part of this cost of living crisis is playing out and how it's shaping the wider um, crisis which the report also digs into quite extensively so we're going to um, uh, then we're going to hear for her and then we're going to hear from all of you in questions and with a poll so go on to, to Slido and it's hashtag still coping and as well as particular we're going to dig into you know where's this going so the survey tells you quite a lot about what's going on right now unsurprisingly it's not perky news I'm afraid but w what happens next where are we going to be going as we think ahead to the next six months and next year and I'll also just push us while we're going through this event to think about what does how different groups have ended up coping with this crisis tell us about two things one the government's policy response so far so does the response look like 
make it make sense given what we can now see about how people are responding. The, um, and then secondly, what does the way people have responded tell you about the nature of Britain in the 21st century? What does it tell you about people's dif dif how different people do well and don't do well in a Britain that looks like it does? Because a lot of how the cost of living crisis, which hits everybody, has ended up playing out is actually telling you about what was going on in Britain before anybody had started talking about energy bills. So that is the plan. Molly, thank you for the report. Over to you to tell us what's in it. Okay, thank you, Torsten. And um, yeah, so I'm going to try and summarise the findings of our report that was published today um, called Hoping and Coping, um, which was kindly funded by the Health Foundation. So thanks to them and also thanks to my co-authors, Carl and Lalitha, for helping get, getting this report over the line this week. So to kick us off, um, we all know that the country has been experiencing an inflationary shock. Double-digit inflation is still with us, with a headline rate of inflation standing at 10.1% in March 2023. As a result, families in the UK are still in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis, with high inflation dragging down the real value of earnings and most benefits. So, given that the cost-of-living crisis isn't over, it's important to understand how people have experienced the crisis so far and how it's affected living standards to date. So to do this, we've conducted two surveys of 10,000 people to understand how people are experiencing the crisis. The first was done in November and the second one, which we draw on in our report, was um, done at the beginning of March. These surveys allow us to understand how people have managed through the winter, a time um, many consider uh, where the peak of the crisis was most acute and allows us to dig deeper into the differences between groups. So our overarching finding from the report is that the vast majority of people have been affected by higher prices. Three quarters of respondents reported that they've tried to cut back on their consumption over the winter. However, if we look at the inverse of this question, those who reported that they didn't need to cut back, um, so those that reported that they didn't need to cut back, the results showed that some people have been more insulated from the crisis than others. And we can see this from this chart here, which shows that 22% of people in the top income quintile and around 3 in 10 people um, aged 75 and above reported that they didn't need to cut back on their consumption between December and March. Uh, this clear income gradient and age gradient that we can see in this chart shows that um, perhaps poorer and younger people have had a tougher time this winter. So in addition to cutting back, there are other coping mechanisms that people have used to get by over the winter, with lots of people reporting that they've used their savings. Almost half of respondents reported that they'd use their savings to make ends meet between December and March. And again, from this chart, we can see that older and richer people, again, were perhaps a bit more insulated from the crisis as they were the least likely to report that they'd use their savings to make ends meet, with around three in 10 people in the top income quintile and um, those aged 75 and above um, reporting that um, they needed to use their savings. Another way to balance day-to-day -day expenditure is to take on more debt. Um, our survey suggests that around a quarter of adults use formal lending, such as credit cards and overdrafts, to make ends meet this winter. But as we can see from this chart, it is the younger middle-aged that were more likely to have resorted this, to formal lending, with 37% of those aged 35 to 44 reporting doing so. 
So debt can be a really useful tool to manage expenses, but not everyone can access credit. Poorer and younger people tend to be more credit constrained and find it more difficult to access um, this type of formal lending that we discussed on the previous chart. Um, so our survey suggests that those that were less able to access credit were more likely to have fallen into arrears over the winter. 12% of our survey respondents reported that they missed a priority bill payment between December and March, but this rises to around one in five people among those in the bottom income quintile or those aged 18 to 24. Generally, this type of debt is considered to be more worrying than, the fo than formal lending. And this is because there's lots of evidence suggesting that <clears throat> sorry, falling into arrears can lead to significant negative consequences, both financially and emotionally. So another common coping strategy used over the winter was asking friends and family for support. And we can see that younger adults were much more likely to do so. Um, a quarter of those aged 25 to 34 reported receiving financial help in the past year, compared to only 2% of those aged 65 and above. But when we look at the provision of financial help, we can see that this chart is um, skewed much more in the other direction, meaning that older age groups were much more likely to be providing financial support. Um, we find that family matters more than friends when it comes to money and the bank of mum and dad has played a really important role in supporting young people through the past year. For example, over two thirds of people aged 25 to 34 who received financial assistance in the past year reported that their parents were the source of that financial help. So despite um, the different means that people have relied on this winter, whether that be through cutting back, drawing down on savings, or asking family and friends for, for help. For some adults, it has unfortunately not been enough to prevent significant hardship this winter. Uh, this chart shows that 8% um, of respondents reported skipping meals for seven or more days in the past month, while 3% of adults reported that they'd used a food or warm bank in the past four weeks. But as we can see here, this problem is much more concentrated among poorer individuals, with these figures doubling for those people in the bottom income quintile. And we also find that on the whole, older adults and um, rich adults were far less likely to be resorting to these more extreme coping mechanisms. And food insecurity is not the only effect of the crisis. It is also having a negative impact on people's health too. 30% of our respondents reported a decline in their health due to the higher cost of living. But given the evidence that I've presented so far, it's perhaps unsurprising that, the neg that negative health outcomes were much more common among poorer and younger, um, younger adults. As we can see here, 35% of people in the bottom income quintile and 40% of respondents aged 25 to 34 reported that their health had deteriorated as a result of the rising cost of living. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why we might be seeing um, these worse health outcomes for, for these groups. Firstly, the coping mechanisms that poorer and younger people have resorted to are more strongly associated with poor mental health. We can see from this chart here that 14% of our respondents reported feeling unhappy or depressed more, more so than usual between December and March. But this increases to 29% among those that had fallen into bill arrears and further still to 45% among those that were experiencing severe food insecurity. And as we've shown, it is poorer and younger people who are much more likely to be in these categories compared to their richer and older counterparts.
Secondly, as shown in a previous Resolution Foundation report um, by my colleague Lalitha called Trying Times, um, poorer and younger people are also more likely to be living in poor quality housing. Um, for example, uh, poor, uh, those in the lowest income quintile were five times more likely to be living in poor quality housing compared to those in the highest income quintile. And as these charts show, poor quality housing is linked to worse health, both physical and mental. And it's also been linked to a deterioration in health throughout the cost of living crisis. Um, the right hand chart um, here shows that over half of people living in poor quality housing has felt um, that their health has deteriorated as a result of the cost of living crisis compared to just 27% of those not living in poor quality housing. Um, and these differences remain when you control for a variety of other personal characteristics such as age, um, housing tenure uh, and income. So this combination of resorting to more extreme coping mechanisms, as well as living in poor quality housing, might be explaining some of the reason why we might be seeing um, these worse health outcomes for um, poorer and younger people. So to summarise this very um, perky presentation, uh, cost, uh, cost pressures have affected everyone this winter, um, and the, but the way that people have been able to respond to the cost of living crisis has varied significantly across um, income and age groups. High levels of income and wealth inequality um, coming into the crisis has left poorer and younger people particularly more exposed to um, harder um, to financial hardship this winter, while richer and older people appear to have had greater capacity to absorb um, this inflationary shock that we've been living through. So as Torsten mentioned, showing the differences in uh, the way that people have experienced the cost of living crisis to date provides useful insights for the year ahead. Because while we um, might be talking a lot about how inflation will be falling over the coming, coming months, many families will have to cope with um, a permanently higher cost level, meaning that unfortunately the cost of living crisis is far from over. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, Molly. What does our official national statistic um, lands tell us? Well, just, just to repeat what you said earlier, and it's a point that we're probably going to be saying uh, a lot over the next year or so, um, just because headline inflation is likely to start falling, probably falling quite significantly over the next few months, doesn't mean the cost of living crisis has gone away, because, of course, it doesn't mean that prices have fallen, they're just not increasing at the same rate uh, as we've seen over the last 12, 18 months. Um, and so I think there's a danger, particularly with journalists who, who at times can have a, quite a short attention span and kind of jump from one crisis to the next. Apologies. Except ones that work for the eye paper. <laughs> yes, with an honourable exception to my left. I would never do that. Um, once inflation gets down to sort of uh, less exciting levels, they may turn to the next economic crisis if there, if there is one. And certainly media and public attention might wane, but households will still be feeling that hit for some time. Um, and, and I think just going back to your point about lower income households in particular, you know, if you look at the pattern of consumption of lower households, they spend more than a quarter of their household budget on food and energy um, compared with less than a sixth of those on higher income. So they are being disproportionately hit by the big, in, big increases we've seen in food prices and energy prices over the last 12, 18 months. That's not going to change. Um, although somewhat offsetting that, uh, there's been quite <coughs> generous energy support uh, and although in monetary terms that's slightly more for higher income households, as a proportion of budgets has actually been disproportionately generous to those on lower incomes, of course, who need the support, the most in particularly including those on pensions and benefits. 
Um, so that has helped um, those households to absorb the shocks. But you know, they, they also tend to have lower levels of savings, or in some cases, no savings, less access to formal credit, uh, and less uh, likelihood of less support from their wider family, friends, etc., than people who are more, more affluent and better connected. So clearly, a, a lot of households are doing it hard. Uh, we took a decision some time ago at the ONS that we couldn't just uh, rely on our kind of official monthly inflation numbers. We had to go out and collect more data. So we've been looking at uh, prices of least cost items. Yeah. Uh, and had quite an, a good engagement with people like Jack Munro about, you know, where are the generic foods on the shelves and, uh, and why are pasta prices going up 60% and, and all the rest. And clearly those are quite visible price increases. They may not be something that everyone uh, puts in a shopping basket, but they really have an impact on lower income households. And, and one of the interesting um, changes which we hadn't anticipated is that as people put more of a spotlight on those sorts of issues, uh, a lot of items started reappearing on supermarket shelves, uh, lower price items. Which, why, why could that have happened? Uh, who knows? But uh, it's certainly been positive in terms of giving people a wider range of, of choices. Um, so this is like Asda, Asda value pasta is available in more Asda stores after Jack Monroe pointed out that it disappeared from some shops. Apparently so. So, you know, sometimes just a bit of publicity and transparency in talking about the issue can have an impact. Uh, so that, that's mildly encouraging. Um, we're not out of the woods yet, though. I mean, that's what we get. We're still we're one of the few uh, OECD countries which still have double-digit inflation. Now, of course, some of those factors are unique to Europe. Obviously, the US and Canada have been less affected by higher energy prices because they weren't impacted quite so much by higher gas prices and the, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but I think it probably might be worth just trying to explain why inflation in the UK is still 10.1% when it's significantly lower in France, Germany, Spain, etc. Um, now, one of those reasons is we just import a lot of stuff. We imported a lot of gas, we import a lot of food, and obviously those are, those are items that have gone up a lot. And certainly if you look at our produced price series, uh, the cost of domestically produced food materials has gone up about 14-15% over the past year and imported food 29%, so pretty much double. Uh, so that's one reason that food prices are particularly high uh, in the UK, although I would point out that Germany has even higher food inflation, so it's not unique to us, and I don't think you can simply say it's down to Brexit. It's, it's as always with these things, it's complicated, there's lots of factors going on. So, so that's happening. Um, but I am mildly encouraged, and, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why I'm reasonably optimistic, at least for most households. Uh, one is that during the pandemic, people built up a savings buffer, which we estimated about £196 billion. Forced saving, in effect, because a lot of shops were shut. There was only so much you could order online. Uh, and so yeah, a lot of households are actually better in terms of their level of savings than they were pre-pandemic. Now, of course, that's not all. But nonetheless, that's helpful, and they have not run down all of those savings. Um, secondly, in terms of cost pressures, uh, we've seen that uh, fewer businesses are saying that they're passing on costs. That's come down quite a bit over the past year. And factory gate prices, which is the, the price of goods as they leave factories uh, off to uh, retailers, uh, have halved over the last six months or so. So they're coming down. We've all seen petrol prices, diesel prices come down. Uh, and of course, if you look at global food prices and energy prices, or indeed European gas prices, they all come down a lot. In fact, some are lower than pre-pandemic levels. So that's all encouraging. We're not yet seeing it in the headline numbers. 
And, and one of the reasons for that is firstly on the energy price cap, Ofgem had a six month price cap, now a quarterly price cap. So when uh, energy prices in Europe exploded in late February after the Russian invasion, it took a month or two for those to come through into uh, consumer prices and into headline inflation. That was the April 22 um, change in the price cap. Now next month, that April 22 figure drops out of the annual numbers and we're expecting to see a significant fall in headline inflation. Uh, so it part of, that's worth what, two, two points off the headline? I'm, I'm not going to put a precise figure on it, but that's not an unreasonable Around estimate. Yeah, okay. uh, and so there's a bit of a lag in the UK numbers for, for various regulatory yeah. reasons, which doesn't isn't the case in most of the rest of Europe. So that's a factor. And of course, the other factor is that even with businesses, you know, often they will have six, 12, 18 month contracts, which take a while to end. And if they signed up to expensive wheat, for example, sometime last year, they need to wait for those contracts to expire before they can renew them at lower prices. So there's lags built into the whole production and supply chain, essentially, which will take a while to wash through the numbers. Um, but I'm really looking forward to lower inflation in, in a couple of months' time. Just one other point. You and all of us. <laughs> one other point about lags, though, and it is an important one. In the same way that there's lags in prices to flow through into the headline inflation, there's lags in welfare support. So pensions and benefits went up 10.1% this month. Uh, a very welcome increase, but obviously uh, over the past year when prices have been going up, pensioners and, and people on benefits have been falling behind. Now they're starting to catch up. And as headline inflation falls, you will see real pensions and benefits start to increase probably at some point later this year. Likewise, wages have been picking up, private sector around 7%. That's not as high as inflation, but obviously again, as inflation comes down, and if wages stay quite high by historical standards, then you'd expect to see the large falls in real wages that we've seen over the last year start to unwind as well. And that should mean that in a year or two's time, most households will be feeling a somewhat less pressure and pain than they are at the moment, but it will take time. And that doesn't address the issue of what about lower income households who are still very much under, under pressure. So I'll just kind of leave it there, but uh, looking forward to the questions. Very good. Thank you very much, Grant. That was trying to make us feel perky by saying it will get better in a couple of years' uh, <laughs> time. That's what we need to hear. Right, Vicky, over to you. I'm afraid I'm not quite so optimistic. Um, when okay. It, when it comes he was only optimistic right at the end, so it's okay. Uh, well, I'm sorry that I can't be, because I wish that I could, but I'm hearing from people who cannot pay their rent. Um, and I'm interested, to actually, to talk to you about this grant, because I know the ONS... Um, private rental index is an experimental one, so I'm not sure how you are collecting the data. But I think you put rent at about 4% higher than last year. 4.9. Yeah, okay, 4.9. Um, but what I'm hearing is people being hit with 20, 30, 40, even the other week, a 70% rent hike. Um, they can't afford to pay them. Mm. Um, and we did some polling with YouGov at the iPaper recently. 62% of private renters told us they'd had a rent increase in the last year. The majority of those were between 5 and 10%. 15% told us that it was 10 to 15%, so above inflation. That does tie up with what I'm hearing. And I think the, the real problem is it's, it's low-income renters. So Let's take Nick, for instance. Nick is a father of three that I met recently. Um, his housing benefit's been frozen at 2019, 2020 levels, like everybody else who accesses housing benefit, and his rent's going up. Mm. How is he supposed to pay it? 
and he will access credit, perhaps not always legitimate forms, and potentially get into trouble. I know he doesn't eat. I've been into his house. I've seen that he feeds his children and he goes without. And he's representative of so many people that I hear from. So he's a low-income renter, and I think we have to be very worried about that demographic because, as I just said, their, their support has been frozen. Rents are going up. There's no mechanism to stop a private landlord putting up rent in this country. Um, there just simply isn't one. If they want to do it, they can. And because we don't have as much social housing as we used to have, we have a waiting list of over a million, we have more low-income renters who access state support living in the private rented sector at the mercy of private landlords who, by and large, are individuals with two or three properties max. So they're being hit by rising interest rates. And I'm not completely unsympathetic to them. If your mortgage gets more expensive, you are going to put up the rent for your tenants because how are you supposed to pay it? And I was in an eviction court recently sitting in on repossession hearings and I was really surprised, and I, I shouldn't have been, that many of them were landlords. So I think we've got a big problem there. Um, and then for kind of middle income renters who are being hit with these, with these rent increases, that's a huge problem too because their wages aren't going up at the same rate as those rent rises. It ha it's happening to friends of mine um, a couple who, who lived near me um, in East London recently had to move home to Manchester. I mean, these people in their mid-30s, um, because their rent was so expensive for so long, hit with this rent increase, couldn't pay it, and they decided the only thing they can do is move back in with mum and dad and save money. I think a lot of private renters, we know they have less in savings than homeowners, um, were not prepared for, for their rents to increase at this rate, and rents are higher than they've ever been. Um, so it's a problem that we don't really seem to have a solution for politically because there is no appetite for rent controls. Um, and I, again, have some sympathy with that because I think how can you control rents when landlords' costs are going up because they rely on the banks? So it's a complete mess, really. And I think Molly's point about health is really, really key here. There's some really interesting research that I do talk about in my book from an academic called Amy Clare, who's a brilliant, brilliant housing researcher. And what she did was measure levels of CRP protein in a group of people, some of them social tenants, some of them private renters, some of them homeowners. And CRP protein is an indicator of inflammation. So a higher level of, of CRP means you're more likely to have any number of diseases, um, cancers, etc. It, it, it makes you feel really, really crap. And private renters had the highest levels because they are so stressed. And I remember from private renting in mouldy rooms, having my rent put up, and this was pre-inflation, pre-cost of living crisis. I always felt unwell, I always felt anxious, I always felt depressed. And now that I'm a homeowner, okay, with interest rates, it's not a complete walk in the park but I am so, so, so much better off in every way. And the people I meet week in, week out around this country who are living hand to mouth, trying to pay their rents, being hit with rent rises, scrabbling around to figure out how they can pay them. If you don't have mum and dad that you can call on, what, what do you do? So I am quite concerned that the housing crisis is, is actually getting worse. And when I, I mean, talking about jumping from mm. one crisis to the next, I would love to report on something else. And I thought 10 years ago when I started this beat that it would get fixed because it had to, and it's getting worse. 
Right, that was very depressing, Vicky. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we're not holding you like performance related uh, to the 10 years of the writing on it having made it even worse. Um, but you know, another 10 years, you can sort it out. It, get it even I better. really hope it's sorted out. Okay, let's, go on, go on. There, there was a kind of a yes, but probably to my, to my comments, which is exactly that, affordable housing and, and renting is having a major impact. In fact, we published uh, some analysis on private rent increases in England a few weeks back. And certainly in London in particular, a lot of people have had increases over 10% in the last year. Um, and the general experience has been as, exactly as you said, you know, there was a chronic lack of affordable private rental in a lot of parts of the country. Let's come back to that because there's a lot on housing um, to come back to. So let's, we've got about um, 45 minutes. Let's try to dig into um, what's going on as far as we can tell and the reasons for that, including on rents, um, how people are responding, then a bit about policy, and then let's do the future and like where we're heading. The, um, so there's a lot to get in, so we're well, well behaved. So the, um, uh, so one very rude question, but I'm going to bring it up because I think it's quite a good question someone's asked online, here you go, is what was the most surprising finding from this survey? They seem pretty obvious. So I don't actually agree with that, so I thought we'd bring it up to get going. People can come in on this. So the, the main, I'd say the, what's most surprising, so I'll give my answer while you guys have a chance to think. The, um, I thought the most surprising is that the age gradient is so steep, as in older households, it's not they're not affected, and obviously there's obviously a minority who are very badly affected, but on average, older households basically look pretty identical to rich households in not being affected much, by which I mean, if you ask them what they're doing, they're using less energy, but that is basically about it. Right. Mm. They're not they're not cutting back on other spending in a way that other households are. They're not taking on debt in the way that other households are. Some of that's about age, obviously. You're less likely to take on debt later in life. But in general, older households look far more insulated than I thought they would. The reason I thought they would be they wouldn't be so insulated is because older households do use quite a lot of energy as a share of their um, consumption. They have one of the downsides of the, for them of having the bigger houses that you always write about is that they're having to heat bigger houses. But they seem to have cut their energy consumption and more generally not done, had to do loads else. And there are obviously loads of exceptions to that, so we're talking about averages relative to other age groups, but it's basically the same as the in income gradient, and in some cases bigger, actually. So that's my answer on most surprising. Anyone else feeling surprised? I'm interested in the fact that the sort of mid-30s to early 40s turning to more formal lending. I suppose it depends how you guys mm. are classifying formal lending, um, but I would have actually expected that to be the younger age groups, yeah. um, particularly, I mean, I don't know if you would put buy now, pay later in the formal lending category or not. That's a contentious point everywhere. That is um, but certainly what I hear from young people is they use a lot of buy now, pay later. So I'm surprised that it's the kind of middle. And that is a, I mean, we, we've had, I oh, wish be careful because I'm conscious some people watching this may be around the age of 33. <laughs> okay, so we call them younger middle-aged to distinguish between the young. I know you won't self-classify as middle-aged. I do not want loads of abusive emails. It's just to classify, clarify that the really younger groups aren't using loads of formal credit, whereas those who like might plausibly have kids mm. and, ha and be towards the middle of life, towards the middle of working age life, whatever the PC phrasing is. Middle-aged, we're middle-aged, it's okay. <laughs> okay, whatever. Nearly middle-aged uh, are getting, have got large borrowing going on. Yeah, so um, the way that we asked that question in our survey was to ask specifically about um, credit cards 
overdrafts and then any other formal lending. So I guess it's a bit up for interpretation in terms of how people answered that question. But um, yeah, it was the younger middle age that reported that they were using um, they were using that formal lending. But it was still common among um, younger people too. But I think um, the reason why we haven't seen as high levels maybe is because of things like the bank of mum and dad, but also um, you know, difficulty around accessing um, formal lending. So we've shown in previous Resolution Foundation research that um, uh, younger people might find it more difficult to access formal lending because of sort of lack of a credit, credit score and things like that. So I think, um, and that also tends to mirror the pattern that we see in things like the Wealth and Assets Survey in terms of um, it is that age group, the, young, the younger middle age, that um, do tend to have the most type of this um, of that debt. The other thing is when we're looking at the like 18 to 24 year olds, 20, 20 year olds in general, they have become like more Italian over time without the tans, right? But they become, they're like more likely to be living with their parents than they were 30 years ago. And so when the nature of the crisis is an energy bill shock, some of them, you can, like, you've probably got quite a divergent experience amongst young people, some of whom are relatively protected, not necessarily by giving cash by their parents, but the, the household budget that they're living with doesn't, and that won't be true for everybody, but definitely more than it was decades back. Now, they, they might not want to, yeah, they might not want to be living, leaving home, some might like it, some might not, but the point is they are living at home, and so the nature of the financial impact on them is different to those that are sustaining rent rises, paying energy bills. You know, they may well be doing the food shop, but it's just a very different experience for different groups amongst young people. So you can see why they would, you want to, we want to split that between the different um, subjects. Grant, anything surprised you? Not really. I mean, uh, I mean, in broad terms, the, the results are quite similar to our own household surveys, which show that a lot of people, have, or most people have cut back on non-essential spending, reduced fuel and energy costs where they can, uh, it's shopping around more, etc. The, the, those are all exactly the sort of behaviours that you would have expected at the start of a cost of living crisis. So it's good to know that most people are behaving rationally and are doing sensible things. Um, one thing that in some ways wasn't really that surprising but I think is notable is that the over 65 seem to be much less impacted by this cost of living pressure than younger age groups. Now that's not just, I suspect, that they're mostly homeowners. Um, I suspect they also have, many of them, a reasonable savings buffer uh, and of course, they've just got a 10% pay, pay rise through their, through their pension. So they're, doing, they're quite comfortably off. And of course, if you look at patterns of welfare and benefits over the last 10, 15 years, it's really been uh, pensioners who've probably done better than almost any other household demographic. Now, it may not feel like it to them, but I'm talking about relative to other younger household uh, cohorts. So that was in some ways not surprising, but I think it's, it's worth noticing. Just in terms of the difference between the, those in their, say, early 30s versus younger people, I mean, a, a key difference, I think, is the level of exposure to private sector rents. And that's clearly having a big impact on that proportion of the population who are renting, particularly in larger cities where there have been, as Vicky noted, quite significant increases in rents. Okay, let's just do two other elements within this what's going on bit. So <clears throat> what you can't see, well, the survey doesn't help us answer, but you guys are doing lots of work on it is shifting consumption patterns. Mm -hmm. So like when we're reporting CPI month to month, generally we're telling people how an existing basket of goods is changing in price. But one thing that's going on is just like very large changes in the relative price of different goods over the course of the last, like there's a high headline rate of inflation, but we've got like lots of variation within that. Uh, and it's just, much, it's just much bigger than we normally see. And there's 
almost certainly therefore bigger changes in the balance of people's consumption. Yeah. The, um, so how, how are you coping with that, given that the rest of us aren't coping with that, whereas national statisticians have to? Well, the, the way that the, the Consumer Price Index is, uh, the weights for that are updated annually at the start of each year. And what we used to do is wait a while uh, to use our kind of household expenditure surveys to, to be finalised and check all the numbers, cooperate with other sources. And so there's always quite a, a lag of a year or two um, for changing expenditure patterns to be reflected in the weights in the consumer price basket of goods and services. Uh, when the pandemic hit, though, there were big changes in what people spent their money on, as you would expect. You know, obviously, people weren't going to the cinemas, uh, not eating out as much. Certainly, the first half of 2020, travel, basically, travel spend basically disappeared. And so uh, we, and indeed other countries, um, came to the view that we should really try and reflect the current pattern of consumption rather than some historical pre-pandemic numbers. And so we used other sources, including uh, financial transactions data and other survey data to get a better picture of what people are spending on now, or certainly in the last 12 months, as distinct from a year, two years ago. Yeah. And we've been continuing to do that every year when we update our weights, as indeed our other national statistical institutes, so to better reflect patterns. But it's fair to say they have been extremely volatile. What are the, what are the big things we should... So everyone says they're using... Well, well travel is probably the one that's seen the biggest variation over the last couple of years and has been quite volatile, but it is starting to return back to more kind of normal levels. But within the, within the, last, within the last year, as opposed to the pandemic? Well, things like hotels and restaurants, we've seen significant increases there um, as those sectors recover. And of course, they're one of the... Hospitality is one of the areas where employers really struggled to, to recruit. They've had lots of job vacancies and they've had lots of cost pressures as well, higher energy costs, higher food costs, et cetera. You know, um, talk to any publican and they will tell you they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, and, and probably most people in the audience have had a bit of sticker shock when they've gone out and eaten out uh, in the past year as well. Mind everyone what sticker shock is? Well, menu, looking at the menus or rather looking at the bill at the end of the evening thinking it used to cost quite that much. So yes, there's lots of uh, areas where I think you've seen significant changes in prices. Very good. Let's take a question from the gentleman at the front here. Yeah, well, one of the important things that's been mentioned <coughs> is the importance the media places on headline figures. And currently in the UK, we use the CPI to measure our inflation rate. Uh, but the national statistician a few years ago said that there are two broad classes of uh, ways in which you measure inflation. One is uh, allied to the way that households actually experience inflation. And the ONS, to its credit, is working on just such an index. So I was surprised, Grant, that you didn't mention the work that you're doing on that yeah. uh, currently and the importance you attach to it. I know you did mention some of the other innovative things you're doing as a result of um, uh, other media pressure, but the HCI will form the core measure of inflation as experienced by households in the future. Mm. And I would have expected you to comment on that. Could you? Well, I, I did expect at some point somebody would raise it. So I'm glad that you did. And, and just because there's just, no surprises just today. Just to be clear, it was not a plant. Uh, <laughs> this is not set up. But there, there are a number of problems with headline inflation measures. But it's important to think about why we use the CPI. So the Department for Work and Pensions uses it to uprate pensions and benefits. The Bank of England uses it to target monetary policy. But it was never established to estimate what the average costs are faced by the average household. Um, so one example in which it's distorted is it's a so-called plutocratic index, which means it reflects total consumption across all households. And that, of course, means that higher income households who spend a lot more have a greater weight in the inflation basket than lower income households who obviously have lower 
in the household spending. In, in, determining, the, in determining the overall weights. Yes. yes. Um, the household cost index is a democratic index, which means it gives equal weight to all households, mixture of spend. Um, and what's particularly valuable about it is it does quite detailed breakdowns of different demographic groups by age, by whether they're parents <coughs> with children, et cetera, retired, non-retired, et cetera. So if you're, say, a hypothetical think tank with an interest in different demographics, it will provide that more granular data which better reflects what those households are actually facing in terms of cost and price pressures. Now, at the moment, it's only an annual index. We are working on converting that to a quarterly household cost index, and we're hoping to publish a new quarterly series over the summer, which will give more timely estimates of what households are actually paying. And you obviously can see, so one, we're obviously very big supporters yeah. for the reason you outlined. If I could just add, Come on then. We're going to come back to that. Can't wait a second. We're coming to mortgages in a second. The middle class can start screaming in the after second half of this session. <laughs> right, but on... <laughs> But you can, we can even just like we, you know what gonna, we know what it's going to tell us, which is poor households are facing a high rate of inflation yes. right and now because their consumption basket is heavy on food and energy. And although we don't have a quarterly household cost index yet, we have been publishing subgroup CPI and CPIH <coughs> data, which does give that sort of breakdown by income and, and other characteristics. And this is broadly the biggest difference. This is the most regressive, as it were, inflation's been in. For historically, we had a two. We've got about a two-point there, gap now. There's quite a significant difference between the lowest ten uh, percent and the top ten percent. That's true. Although, if you go back a couple of years, it was the other way around. That higher incomes were facing higher prices. Right. Let's do. Uh, Ruth's asked a Ruth Lister has asked a great question here. The um, uh, I don't know whether she's, Ruth is live from the House of Lords or not. But anyway, the um, with and without kids. So we didn't. Do set out loads on this in the report. Remember, if you look back to the pandemic, we did see quite big differences in people's behaviours by whether or not they had kids, which, as anyone who had kids at home during the pandemic can tell you, is not that surprising. The, um, so, what what does the data tell us? Yeah. So, um, yeah, this wasn't a main focus in our report, and we did look at um, some of these differences when um, we were doing our analysis. And to be honest with you, there wasn't a huge difference between um, whether people had kids or didn't. And I guess to some extent this is quite surprising because you would expect people, um, particularly um, single parents, to be having a much worse time this winter. Um, but what we did find in our last survey, so in November, was that um, people with children were more likely to be um, um, experiencing sort of food insecurity, so the more um, severe coping mechanisms. But for some reason that wasn't coming out in this survey as strongly. Are you seeing anything on that? On because I think that is probably a bit surprising for people. You would generally expect. I haven't looked at the breakdown, um, but I think Molly's right. You would expect there to be more pressure on households. But then it partly depends on their, their support networks as well, I suspect. And, and also it may be that some, some groups are relying more on food banks yeah. than others. I mean, I, I, I'm involved with the local food bank in my area in, in London, and uh, most of the people coming through families with children. You can or, you definitely see that in the national yeah. food bank data. It's large the big increase since the pandemic is larger families coming in, which is not surprising given that we've got a benefits policy that basically refuses to give them any support. So they're coming through in um, uh, droves. I should say there's quite a lot in the report which we haven't had loads of time to talk about here, which is about the like there's lots of coping mechanisms lots of people are using, right? Draw down your savings, borrow a bit more money, cut back on your energy consumption. So like lots of people are doing those. We've touched on some of the gradients. But then there's, the, then there's the hard end of what is going on, which is poorer households and some younger households 
food banks or not eating, the, some of the issues that um, Vicky's raising where you've basically got the pattern that fits the painful pattern you would probably mm. have expected. Um, Vicky, have you anything on children you want to add? Well, just anecdotally from what people tell me and they're going to touch, I, I'm hearing from lots of people who are moving, moving home for help with childcare. Um, I don't know if there is any data collected on that nationally, if that specific question has ever been asked. Mm. But that is yep. what people tell me they're doing when their rent goes up. They can't, they can't do everything. They can't do the food shop, fix, out, fix childcare and pay their rent. So yep. if they can't draw down on the bank of mum and dad, they do yep. boomerang home. And it's one thing that one big difference between now and the pandemic. So what, like, why, one of the reasons that we underestimated how hard families were going to get hit financially by the pandemic, younger families particularly, was because because we, because if you just think about this in econ economist terms, you're looking at their outgoings and their ingoings, right? But what actually happened was they lost the support networks because everyone was locked in their house. So you couldn't go to your mum or your dad's to get uh, dinner cooked when you ran out of money that week. You couldn't go to your friends. You couldn't travel as far to the cheapest shop. And that had a big effect during the pandemic, particularly in the first six months in a way that I think we didn't predict coming. And one of the difference now that this survey does bring out is that poorer households are relying on those networks a lot. So younger people are relying on them, particularly for family support. And poorer people are relying on them more than richer people, but they're often friends as well as family. So those networks are probably doing a lot of work that doesn't show up in most of our surveys because we're asking people about what's actually going on um, financially. Let's do let's do um, rent. So I think this does like you must get this every time you guys release your house your uh, your rent indices and things. Which is there's two things going on. We've got people renters and uh, engaged journalists writing pieces saying record rent rises. It's like a kind of tsunami of rent rises. The world's over. Um, and then you've got some data showing some rent rises. Yeah. They're not that large. Um, now, so let's just puzzle through a bit of why, what, why, is, why are those two worlds looking different and how might we reconcile them? So the obvious one is stock of renters versus flow of new renters. Yeah, so, so our measure is all people paying rent, not new contracts. Um, and a lot of the other private sector or commercial in indices that you see are of new rental agreements. And not surprisingly, new rental agreements are showing much bigger increases than people are in existing uh, rental uh, agreements. And indeed, you know, I know just anecdotally a few people who have seen very little or no increase in their rent in recent years because they have a very nice landlord who's not under any financial pressure and, and they're a nice tenant, so they're just keep paying the same amount. Now, that's reflected in our numbers. It's not reflected in, in what you see when you talk to people or what you see in some of the other measures yeah. of prices, which is why we're, we're just under 5% uh, across the UK and most other measures are reporting much larger increases. So I think it depends whether you're in a stable tenancy with yeah. a nice landlord, and if you are, it's great, or whether you're out there desperately trying to find some place to live, and particularly if you're in one of the major cities which seem to have significant shortages of affordable private rent. Because on your numbers, rents are actually rising more slowly than earnings. Yeah. And indeed benefits after the, well, once the benefit. But the, these are averages uh, and do not reflect the experience of everyone, obviously. That, is, that, sound, that sounded like a very good, it sounded like the, like the warning on the bottom of an advert. They, but yes, that is true. They, they definitely do not. Vicky, come on. There's a few things I think that are important to pay attention to with, with rental data. One is asking rents versus actual rents. Mm. And it depends on who's releasing 
the stats so like right move and Zoopla, they are talking about asking rents. Yeah. Um, and actually what a landlord wants to charge and what renters can actually pay is often not one and the same. Sometimes it's more, right? Like mm, you, yeah. I'm hearing stories of multiple people bidding on um, rental properties in the way that you yeah. bid on a house. Um, I would also, I, I'm very reluctant to ever talk about the housing market, mm. the housing crisis. I think you have to talk about different parts of the country, which, which Grant is doing. You know, what's happening in major cities is different to what's happening in some rural areas. But I think another aspect of this is actually tourist hotspots, which in the last few years have really, really been hit by the second home boom, where there are very few affordable properties for private rent now, like take Cornwall, take the Lake District. Um, there's, there's a big problem in those places too, which is distinctly different to what's mm. going on in cities, but does bear some resemblances. So it's, it's, I think it's important to talk about the, the regional housing markets and what's, yeah. what's going on in them. And, and London, not a million miles away from what's happening in Manchester, but it is, again, different to Manchester. Mm. Um, but this kind of speaks to how we talk about inflation and inflation data. I think journalists, when reporting on this, you know, I don't want to make myself unpopular with my colleagues, but short word counts. Off you go. For print. <laughs> Grant's already had a go at them, so you might as well get it on the act. If you've got 400 words for a print story, mm. you can't really get into the nuances of how the data was collected and why it might not be truly representative. Yeah. Um, it would be great if you could, uh, but I think this has actually been a huge challenge in reporting on the cost of living crisis and also the housing crisis or anything that involves data. How do you accurately represent it and talk about nuance when yep. you're trying to make things easy to digest and concise? What's the answer to that as the woman doing that? We're trying hard to try hard. break it down. That's very bold of you. <laughs> the strategy is to try hard, right? Everyone should try hard. No, it's, it, you know what it is? It's, it's, it's trying to explain what, what CPI is because mm. most of the people yeah. who are impacted by this don't know what that means. Yeah. We're talking about it in this room, but the people I've discussed, the case studies, you know, real people out there at the sharp end I'd be of very worried if they knew what CPI was, yeah. Well, they know, I don't, I don't want to say that they don't know what CPI is um, and be patronising to them, but they're not as well versed in all of this as we are. Yeah. And I think there's, yeah. there's, there's a knowledge gap. And, and it's also reflecting that um, this is very much an average, which most people probably have a quite different inflation rate to what the official headline yeah. numbers are, which is why we have a personal inflation calculator on the ONS website, also on the BBC website, where you can put in your own pattern of consumptions and work out what kind of cost pressures you're... Right, thanks for letting us do that, Grant. If you well, want to get yourself down, you can go and get personally down rather than collectively down. Well, I think statistically half of the people who do that are probably going to be below the average. Um, so good news to some. Okay, very good. Right. Molly, do you want to um, on that? No, I would just say that um, this uh, report that we launched today doesn't really focus on housing per se, but we did release our, um, a report a couple of weeks ago which covered all the housing questions that we asked in our survey. And that does find that um, renters, both private and social renters, were much more worried about their um, housing costs yeah. um, going forward, um, which again might be quite surprising just given the fact that lots of attention has been given to interest rates and what that means mm. for mortgages going forward. Very good. Okay. The, um, why don't we use that to pivot a bit to the future? So I'm going to bring up a poll for you all to vote on. As I said, it's hashtag still coping on Slido. Here we are. And the panel can have a look and give us their views. So let's just pivot towards the future a bit. So the, uh, this is basically the, the big, you talked about the big energy rise last April, right, dropping out shortly from the annual statistics inflation, although not dropping out for our bills, unfortunately, um, until a few months time. 
Um, that's kind of kicked off this phase, and which is most acute in the autumn. So what we've got is lower income households and younger middle-aged, which is our euphemism, uh, from like 30 to 50-ish uh, people being worst affected. Do we think in future we're going to see that continue? Those are the groups that will suffer most on the basis that on current forecasts, next winter looks pretty bad compared to this winter. As I'll come back to in a second, that's partly because the amount of government support is being brought backwards, even as some pressures are easing. Or the issue Molly's raised, which is we're, two things are going on right now which are worse for higher income households. Higher By higher, I mean the middle to the top, mm. right? I don't mean just the top, which are basically their taxes just went up quite a lot. They, um, there's a reason why the Telegraph is very upset at the moment, right? Mm. So their taxes went up a lot in, the, in April. They, um, that, it, lots of people who are in work are affected by that, but it, household level it is basically the middle and the top that are seeing big rises. Um, and then their mortgages are basically going up. And although rent is in the news, most of the projections of housing costs as a share of income are going to show housing costs pushing down on mm -hmm. uh, mortgages' incomes more than renters over the course of the next few years. Those projections may turn out to be wrong, but because the rises are so large, so we're talking kind of three grand for your average household, average mortgager, uh, five grand in the bit expensive parts of the country. So these are large amounts. Now, some people paying rent sort of say, I've, been, I've seen a rise like that as well. But overall, the expectation is that is what is coming. So maybe it's going to move, the crisis is moving up the income distribution as you go through the year. Uh, as we showed you, pensioners are relatively insulated, but the government is actually, although it, the state pension has gone up by 10%, some of the other energy specific support for pensioners is actually being withdrawn faster than for poorer working age households, right? So the cost of living payments, 900 pounds. The large ones are particularly concentrated on poorer working age households and some with dis people with disabilities as well. They, um, there's still some support for pensioners, but the, um, the relative amount of it and the universality of it across pensioners is coming down. So will pensioners have a tougher time? Uh, or are you really perky? It is gonna change, but that's because everybody's gonna, can, it's all gonna be great. Prices are gonna fall. Everyone's actually fine. They're, you're a bold person going for option four, but this is a democracy, so you can choose. So, Vicky, come on. What's going to happen? I think it's two. I think it's going to move up. Think up the income scale, yeah. Because of? Because of, I think more mortgage mortgages are going to be a real pinch point for a lot of people. I mean, I'm feeling that myself. And I think there's something else to watch out for, which is even more long term, which is we've, everyone's been expecting a housing market crash. Yeah. Um, prices are falling in some parts of the country, but not as quickly as they were expected to. But the market seems to have been propped up by a surge in first time buyers at the end of last year. But they're taking out longer term mortgages 40 years now. When I took out my mortgage five years ago, 30 to 35 was sort of the absolute max. I think we're going to see more longer term mortgages. And if rates, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in, in the future? I don't have a crystal ball. We, people, some people think rates are going to stabilise. Some people point out that anything could happen. Nobody expected Putin to invade Ukraine. Well, lots of people did. But at that point in time, you know, the housing market was exposed as being reliant on so many global factors. So I think it's worth watching out for these first-time buyers who have bought at a historic high in housing market and taken out mortgages for a very, very long period of time and may have fixed for two, five years and will be hit if rates don't come down. I mean, if they ever come down to the sort of post-global financial crash lows that yeah. we had, I think maybe it will all be fine, but I'm not I sure. I mean, that is, that. so for the individuals affected, it's like really big, okay? Well, if you look at this rate rise cycle compared to like the 90s, the, so for those affected, because they have larger mortgages, they're in general, on average, they're, 
it's a very large effect, big income shock, right? But the numbers of people affected are relatively low, compared, definitely compared to the 90s. There's just fewer, one, one of the effects of like having lower home ownership rates is there's fewer people with mortgages. We've got loads of outright owners, the, i.e. people aged 50 plus. The, um, so do you think it might be really painful, but just for a small number of people? And so the politics of mortgages just isn't what it used to be. Essentially, so then maybe. So you'll just be really angry, <laughs> and, uh, but, or, or, but, but everyone else will be like, "Pipe down, Vicky! I haven't got a mortgage." <laughs> well, let's see what happens with home ownership. Let's see what the government does. They're hell bent on increasing home ownership, as they keep saying. How they're going to do it? Now they've wound down help to buy. I'd love to know. We're going to get a new help to buy. On the yeah, election. we are. So I, so 100%. I, hundred percent. I think help to buy two point is is probably on the way. So let's see. Right, come on, Grant. What's your vote? Well, I have a question from the audience. I think, Torsten, the, the challenge for me is the way that you set up the question implies me speculating about the future path of Bank of England interest rates. And, just take them uh, as they're given. Let's assume they've done what they've done. Well, yes, but at some point you'd expect... How about I give the Interest caveat? rates and mortgages will <laughs> decline. Yes. And when is the question? Okay, well, don't comment on that because that would no, be No, I'm not going to comment on that. But, on the, but more widely, what do you think in terms of what's going to, how it's going to play out, given well, the, think, what we do know. I think there's a value judgment here, which is it may be that some middle-income households with a large mortgage will be harder hit, but should we care more about that than lower-income households who are struggling already. to find somewhere to live or are already hit? Yeah. And that's a, that's a value judgment. Um, personally, I know where I, I would care more, um, although I am one of those middle-income households hit by higher mortgage costs, but, you know, that's life. That is life. That is Bank of England life. Molly, what are you going for? Um, You're allowed to have views on everything. So. Yeah, so I, I guess we've spoken about the sort of pressure of higher taxes and mortgages. So I think I might just say a couple of things for, uh, that are related to young people. So um, in, our, uh, in our survey, we had a chart that basically shows that if you have a substantial savings buffer, then you're much less likely to resort to sort of more worrying coping mechanisms, whether that be um, taking on debt or falling into arrears. Um, and what we've seen is that younger people have seen more substantial falls in their sort of savings buffer, and more of them are left with um, a much smaller um, buffer if they have a buffer at all. So um, I think that's really important going forward. And then also the fact that as we've shown, younger people were much more likely to rely on their friends and family um, for support over the winter. Because this cost pressure is so widespread, we're also seeing pressure on these networks as well with um, more people reporting that they're less able to help. So young people may also be finding that they've no longer got any savings to rely on, but also um, that the informal networks that they have um, had available to them are no longer um, an option. So that's also a problem. Is that a vote for continue? Uh, yes, because like we've had two already. So. Okay, right. Let's bring up the what everyone else at home and in the room thinks. And the, okay, well, democracy Ooh, is wow. definitely decided. That is a landslide. The, um, I think that is at least the safest bet in terms of like where the problem, most problematic parts of this crisis are going to be. Because there's two things that matter about these coping mechanisms. There's like who is affected and then how well are they able to cope with what's happening. If you view it through the lens of both of those rather than just the former, then you come out with, as yeah. you're basically saying, Grant, you come out with continue being the most likely um, outcome. There's quite a few questions, but there's, there's loads of questions. Basically, far too, you've all asked far too many questions. I'm just trying to vaguely cope with them. But someone's asked a good question, Molly, here, which is, is the reason older people are coping is just because you don't spend if you can't afford it? The, um, <laughs> uh, and I hear this one, I bring this one up because I get, I get asked this one a lot. Whenever I'm doing an event and I show a chart, which is basically 
older people in Britain doing a bit better financially relative to younger people than so somebody um, not always older, but generally older puts their hands up and says, it's because the young people had the avocados. They don't know that they shouldn't buy the avocados and the cheap clothes. When I was a kid in the 70s, we never turned on the single bar heater unless we could definitely afford it and blah, blah, blah. So um, uh, as you can tell from what I'm saying, uh, not massive sympathy with this because do you know who's eating the avocados? We have actually looked at this. Yeah, Molly. Yeah, no, so exactly what you said. We have done some research which shows that actually older people are spending more of um, their income on luxuries compared to younger people. And that's because of things like um, housing costs, which are taking up such a large amount of people's um, budgets. But I guess um, from our survey, I'd just like to emphasise the fact that older people are much more likely to have their um, the big savings buffers that we've discussed and um, have been more able to absorb the rising costs through using those um, savings buffers. But also, um, we did an intergenerational audit last year which showed that older people are more likely to live in larger homes, so have been more able to absorb some of the sort of rising energy prices by um, not heating all of their homes, which isn't an option for young people that are living in small flats, which um, you have to heat the whole home or else you'll feel a bit miserable. So um, yeah, I think, uh, oh, and also a final point is that, um, as Grant mentioned earlier, we've seen that um, the state pension or changes to the state pension since 2010 has left pensioners over 600 pounds a year better off. But um, when you look at changes to working age benefits since 2010, yep. um, it's actually left uh, non-pensioners 800 pounds a year worse off. So um, there's lots of things at play here and um, might be explaining why um, older people have been more insulated from the crisis. And the ones cutting back, if we're, if we're on going out at weekends, <laughs> it's basically younger people cutting back most on leisure and hospitality stuff. The, um, which basically fits the entire last pattern of the last 20 years, right? Which is like, and it's partly because older, remember in the 1990s, pensioners were poor, right? So they were, the baseline was pensioners were doing very little hospitality, you know, because they were just really poor in the 90s. Pensioner poverty was like a big part of British politics then for a reason. And so you, it's not just about the benefit choices you both mentioned, mm. like private pension incomes today are much higher than they were because you've got the DB cohort of pensioners coming through and enjoying it. The, um, and so that's why you've got very different consumption patterns. That's why if you look at like what pensioners consume today to what pensioners consumed in 2000, they are the group whose p consumption has gone up a lot in luxury items. L I don't want luxuries overdoing it slightly, right? They're not all buying Porsches. We're talking about having a nice time, which we're obviously in favour of in general. The, um, uh, within reason, obviously. The, um, right, there's loads of other questions. The, um, let's, let's try to do a bit about... Um, uh, we haven't touched much on the health findings in the survey and the housing link. Because one of the things I was surprised about, so you mentioned this, Molly, is, here we go. So when we look at the health outcomes, which are like, one, lots of people having bad health outcomes from the results of, from, from this crisis, and then large differences, housing's playing a big part. If you, like, if you just do the correlation, right? Having a low quality house is a big correlation with having um, a health outcome from this crisis, then I thought it would go away when you controlled for age and income and everything else. It doesn't go away. Like, is that, was that a surprise? And what do we, and then let's specifically, what's the answer on what low quality housing means? 
Yeah, so I guess it was a surprise because yeah, we did think that it would go away once you controlled for things like tenure, um, age and income, but it didn't. And that was a surprising finding. Um, in terms of how we defined um, high and low quality housing, I have written this down because I always forget one, but we asked people um, whether their home was in a good state of repair, whether they were living in a damp free home and whether their drains heating um, and electrics were kept in a good working order. And people that um, said yes to all three of those um, were considered to be in poor quality housing, uh, sorry, were considered to be in good quality housing. Um, so that's how we defined it. And um, in terms of how we asked about a deterioration in health, um, we did two things. So the chart that I showed on in the presentation just asked if people had felt that their health had been um, had been worsened as a result of the rising cost of living. But we also ask about a range of different questions around mental health. And if people tick multiple options, um, then they're considered to be in emotional distress. And again, we find that younger people and poorer people were much more likely to be um, reporting sort of high levels of emotional distress over the past, um, past three months. Great. Right. Let's let's go on. I think you should take this. So one thing that's popular in the news at the moment, partly because it's a big feature of US economic debates right now, and Hugh Pell actually wandered into this a bit yesterday. So who's winning from what is going on? So what I think lots of people, I, I regularly get told profits are surging uh, because of the cost of living crisis, uh, higher prices, people are protecting their margins. Um, from the Bank of England's perspective, that's say, mm. could you please stop pushing up inflation, please, companies? And from kind of the kind of lefty critique perspective, it's uh, people are winning and you, you should be taxing them more. Yeah. They, um, what does the data actually tell us about profits? So there's kind of the macro view and then there's kind of what's going on in firms or industries. So let's start with the macro view. Um, we, we published a quarterly series on company profitability. Manufacturing profitability is down significantly from pre-pandemic levels now. And even before they had the hit of higher energy prices, et cetera, they're, they're under pressure um, for a variety of reasons, but certainly their average rate of profitability has declined over the last two or three years. For services, it's more a mixed picture, no, no significant increases in the aggregate numbers higher or lower over the past couple of years. And that includes, of course, wholesale and retail. So I'm not saying that there may not be some particular firms that are doing very well, maybe even, you know, profit gouging, but perhaps. But overall, there's no sign of an increase in company profitability, in fact, if anything, certainly for manufacturing, it's, it's weaker. The one area where profitability has gone up quite a lot are what we call uh, continental shelf companies, which basically means Energy firms. oil and gas. Yeah. Uh, no surprises there, although let's not forget that in addition to the existing corporate tax and the additional levies, there's now these kind of super profits on energy uh, companies and electricity suppliers. So, you know, uh, re in terms of the actual ta overall aggregate tax rates, they are very high by historical standards. And, and of course, you would expect that as energy prices start to fall and the cost of energy drops back, that those high elevated profits would also decline. Now, at the firm level, we have a fortnightly business insights and conditions survey, and we've been asking for some time are the costs of things that you're buying, your raw materials, your energy, et cetera, going up? And of course, over the last year, most have said yes. And we also say, are you passing those through in the prices that you're selling to retailers and consumers? And very consistently for the past 12, eight months, they're saying they're, 
about half of the firms that say they've had a cost increase have said that they're passing them on. So what's been happening actually in a lot of companies is they've been absorbing some of those cost pressures, um, taking a bit of a hit on their margins and on their profitability. So margin compression, I think is the, the technical term. Now, part of that is, is what is called smoothing. I mean, if you think about uh, a food manufacturer, say every time your costs change, you're not going to change your, the price of your products on the supermarket shelf. So you just smooth them out and try and absorb some of those pressures. Mindful of the fact, of course, that if you, if you raise your prices too high versus a competitor, you might lose market share. Um, now, as prices start to come back and cost pressures start to ease, you would expect the average company will try and rebuild those margins a bit, which means they may not fully pass through the cost savings in the same way they didn't fully pass through the cost increases. And that may be one of the factors that means it takes a while for inflation to ease, perhaps at a slower pace than you would see if you just look at what the price of wheat is, say. Yeah. So, let's, so what does that tell That tells us Britain's getting so much poorer, don't worry, that there's enough scope for, for pro profits and wages to take a pummeling. Um, is that our basic conclusion from that? Well, I'll, I'll give you a statistic. So a year ago, 24% of businesses said that they had increased the, rate, the uh, prices that they were selling. Uh, last month, it was 16%. This goes in your optimism bucket from earlier. So, and that reflects the fact that you know, prices, factory gate prices have halved over the past year. So it's not really showing the up yet. Yeah, it's not really showing up yet in the headline inflation, but we talked about the lags earlier. Give it a few months, I'd be very surprised if you don't see significant falls. If I were interviewing you both for a piece about this, I'd say you haven't actually answered the question, which is where is the extra money going? I'm just chairing, I'm not answering any questions. <laughs> but I think, I think that's why this narrative, right, about profits being hoarded is, yeah. is, is taking on, because people are paying more for things, whether it's rent or their food shop, yeah. and they don't understand <laughs> where the money you're, is. You're there. right, and I did talk about money illusion, which is, if you're a company and your costs have gone up 10% and, you and you're selling them at 10% higher, your revenue's gone up 10%, record high revenue, but you haven't made any more profit. And so a lot of companies are reporting record high levels of revenue, um, but they're not necessarily making more profit. And likewise, if, if your pay's gone up 10%, if you're in those lucky few whose pay has gone up 10% in the last year, but inflation's gone up 10%, you're no better off. Uh, and we're not used to that kind of thinking because we've, we've, for the last couple of decades, inflation has been around 2% and we haven't really worried about these kind of small incremental increases. But when you live in a world of high inflation, it's real revenue, it's real pay that matters. Here's an, and since you've asked a question, Vicky, I'm going to answer it. Yeah. But like, another way of putting it is everyone's got poorer, right? To a degree. Most people have got poorer um, to different degrees. And so they're asking... If everyone's got poorer, someone must have got richer, right? The, um, and the answer is, yes, that's true, but they're just not in Britain. Yeah. Basically, it's foreigners, because they have all the oil and the gas. The, um, and so that's the bigger, and, and in some cases, the green, depending on what's happening with that. So, the, um, so that, insofar as you've got like a clear who has won from it, some UK companies that have some of the oil and the gas, and uh, Grant's given us some of those, the, um, there'll be individual companies, obviously, within the system also yeah. doing well. So, but let's look, on average, the big answer is, people with lots of oil and gas, a massive And that's reflected by the fact that our terms of trade have deteriorated over the last 12, 18 months, and that means effectively you Let's remind everyone what terms of trade are, because some people were kind of, they fell asleep when you that, said that. Yeah, well, that's what we pay for for imports versus domestic goods. So what we, can, what we can buy for what yeah, we Yeah, so produce. the purchasing power of UK PLC has Got dropped. Down. Yeah. 
I won't ask you to. Does that sound like we answered the question? Yes. <laughs> you left out mortgage securities, but well, that's yeah. okay. We definitely did that. Yes, that is true. But remember, the Bank of England is trying to make people with mortgages poorer in that case. But you're right, there are then winners from that. So like one thing we don't talk about much, so a lot of the distribution we've been talking about here is about the price, price changes, which is mainly about global factors, although not only. On interest rates, interest rates are a distributional policy, trying to take money off some people, people with mortgages, and give it to other people, older people, or, or richer people, basically. That's basically what, I mean, that's not how the Bank of England's gonna describe monetary policy, but that is the monetary policy transmission mechanism by which we try and slow the economy. Uh, make people who consume a lot poorer, and make people who don't consume a lot a bit richer. Within Britain, there's then international factors as well, obviously in but that gets too complicated. Right, to wrap us up then, I just wanna do one thing, which is give each of the panel, give us their reflections on what this, is, what this tells us about A, the policy response to the crisis, so how well does the policy response that we have done um, over the course of the last year as it's evolved match up to who is affected or, or the extent of the effect? And then secondly, what does it tell us about Britain? The, um, what, is that, what does the fact that this is the outcome we've seen from prices rising basically for everyone, even if slightly higher for poor households, mm. what does these effects tell us about the nature of modern Britain? So you can do a bit of sociology uh, if that's your bent in there. Molly, you work for us, so you get to go first because these guys need a chance to think because that's fair. Um, okay, so in terms of the government support, so um, I think it's largely been well targeted. So um, we've done some distributional analysis that um, the EPG and the various cost of living payments have benefited poorer households uh, more. And as we can see from the charts, it's those households that have been having a worse time. Um, there have been... Uh, cost of living payments for pensioners and um, I guess what's interesting is as we've discussed it's those age 65 and above that seem to have been more insulated and um, I guess one of the things that we can't split out in our survey is um, how much um, those cost of living payments have contributed to this um, so I guess that's a question mark um, in terms of do you want me to do policy going forward? I don't want policy going forward, I want all the underlying country. All right, okay, country. Under, underlying country going forward. So yeah, I guess as I concluded in the presentation, I think it's the fact that we've had um, low economic growth, we've had high income and wealth inequality, leaving um, lower income households um, that don't have any savings and um, younger households who are faced with you know these um, really high housing costs and also very little in savings in terms of their wealth. Uh, more exposed to this um, uh, cost of living crisis that we've been living through for the past year. Well, if you want big picture, um, this is, in the last three years, we've had uh, the, the first global pandemic in a century, uh, the most severe fall or economic downturn in probably several hundred years, according to the Bank of England, a global supply chain uh, crisis, unprecedented probably since World War II, and the highest inflation numbers for 40 years. So it's been a really turbulent time. But one of the things, two, two things I think that I take some optimism from is it's shown just how resilient and adaptable people are. I mean, the pandemic response in particular. People adapt more than I think officials, academics recognise. People or capitalism? People. People are quite resilient and adaptable. Um, so that's the good news. Okay. And I think the other good news potentially is I think government has been a bit more nimble in responding to these things. If you point to the furlough scheme, for example, or even to the energy price guarantee, I think if you went back 20 or 30 years, government may not have been as responsive. 
Definitely. to these shocks that have impacted households. And I think that's a big positive as well. Oh, good. The libertarians are screaming at the screen <laughs> so that they think the entire world has ended because of that activism. Right, right Vicky. Well, I, I'm, of course, going to bring it back to housing, but we, we had a housing crisis before the pandemic, and the pandemic exposed how bad that was. Particularly, we, we had to uplift housing benefit because it didn't cover rents, yep. and we were worried what would happen if people couldn't work to top up their housing benefit. What's happening now, I think, as the cost of living crisis enters its second year, is that we've got frozen housing benefit, and we're seeing that low-income renters, many of whom are in work, can't afford their rents. So, big picture, that, I think, is spreading up the chain. Middle-income renters, people who maybe once would have been able to save to get a deposit together to buy a house, are also struggling. And if rents don't come down, house prices don't come down, um, and no support comes through for renters, um, I think we're going to be in big trouble. Thank you very much for that perky thought to end on. I'll give you like a, two, like a couplet for like our summary, which is, what, one of the things I take from this is, the policy response is broadly good because it is targeted on the people that are having the toughest time, particularly actually as we move through the crisis. The universal bits of the support are coming away. The bits focused on poorer households and to some degree younger households are staying put. And if you'd asked me like a year ago, is a Conservative government going to raise benefits by 10% at a time when earnings are going up by significantly less than that, I'd have said no. So like big, big things have changed that weren't the normal pattern. They, um, and, in gen and taxes have got... Um, like. Taxes are going up, and they're going up on on the richer half of households. Like Britain's become poorer, we're dealing with that by providing higher benefits, spending on poorer households relative relative to average incomes, and by raising taxes on rich households. That's like the right shape of the pattern. That's what the textbooks say you should do when facing a cost in the rise of essentials. And after a load of messy processes to get there, the government has basically got to that uh, position. So policy good. Um, what it tells you about Britain very bad very unequal, disastrous housing stock, um, having re making when the crisis low growth and that when the crisis turns up of the, this kind, you see really bad outcomes for poor households in particular, food bank usage through the roof, food insecurity, homes affecting their health. And so it's that, it's the, the lesson about Britain is the big lesson for us rather than the lesson about did we have, is the policy response to the crisis right? Policy response, pretty good from government. State of Britain, not good enough. So all of you civil servants watching must do better and politicians and humans and the rest of us, that's what we need to sort out the underlying challenges rather than just trying to tweak the policy to sort out the current crisis. So uh, that's the depressing point to end on, but can we all thank our panel for their thoughts over the course of today? Thank you all for um, coming. This is part, as I say, of a wider programme of work with the Health Foundation to make sure that we are monitoring what's happening to people's living standards and how they're coping during this crisis. So keep an eye out for more work in this area. Thank you very much for coming. See you again event soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.